0: Well, good morning again. Can you hear me okay? No? I think? Come on now, okay. Um, We are in Psalm 144 this morning. We're in a series in the Psalms. And if you arrived late and are new here, we're so glad you're here. My name is Paul Buckley, one of the pastors here. We're uh, looking at these wonderful songs and really poems that are meant to guide us. In our worship, guide us in our lives with God. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 144. So you can be turning there. Actually, you have it on the sheets. Hopefully, your handout there. And before we jump in there, let me ask: uh, Is there anyone here who knows the uh, the the British national anthem besides Toby Gaynor? Anyone who knows the British national anthem? Anyone know the? I think this. This on. anyone know the title if you if you see the title for the message today that's that's a hint uh, the title is God Save the King or God Save the Queen um, it's their national anthem it's sung to the tune of my country tis of thee I don't know why they had to steal our tune for their song but that's okay um, it's called God Save the Queen as it's sung currently and this is what it says God save our gracious Queen Long live our noble Queen, God save the Queen. Send her victorious, happy and glorious. Long to reign over us, God save the Queen. Now, as Americans, you're probably listening and thinking, that seems a little odd. Uh, It's different as far as our mindset. We're not going to make a national anthem this way. But if you're British, it makes perfect sense, because uh, they have a long history of tying the success of the monarchy with the success of the kingdom. So if you're British and singing this as your national anthem, you're not just singing to the queen, as wonderful as she is, you're singing this about your country. In a sense, you're saying, God save the UK. God make the UK prosperous under the reign of the queen. That's, that's the sentiment. I think you can ask, I can check with Toby to make sure, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on there. And I bring that up because actually that's what this psalm is like. That's what we're going to see in this psalm. It's a a, a royal psalm, a kingly psalm. It's about a king. And there's a connection in the psalm between the the success of the king and the success of the kingdom. And I believe that there's much to learn from this and much to apply. Uh, As God's word always does, it affects our lives. So let's pray. Then we'll read the psalm. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 144. We thank you for your word, and, and Lord, we thank you for today. I ask you just for help right now uh, to proclaim your word, for us to listen. We're hot. Lord, uh, my left ear isn't working for some reason, and I just lift uh, our need to you, and we trust you, Lord. Uh, Lord, we know you're faithful, and your word is life-giving. So we pray, Lord, would you give your life to us through your word? Help me to properly, adequately... Um, Explain it and proclaim it, and Lord, be glorified. Help us to fix our attention on you, and you would change us and be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 144 of David. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. From the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you. O God, upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries Be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. God's word from Psalm 144. This wonderful psalm leads us And praying and and living according to two aspects of God's kingdom. First, the idea of the success of our king. And then the prosperity of his kingdom. We're taught to pray and live for the success of King Jesus. That we might experience the blessings of the kingdom of Jesus. That's what this psalm teaches us. So, I want to dig in. First, I want to cover a little background on the psalms. And on on this psalm in particular that I think will help us understand and apply these things. As I said earlier, this is a kingship psalm. There are fourteen kingship psalms uh, in scripture that either uh, speak about the king of Israel, so David being of course a a prominently featured king of Israel in the psalms, or God himself as the ultimate king. So these kingly psalms focus on the, the king of Israel or God himself. They include prayers and blessings or promises on behalf of the king. Uh, there's, like I said, 14. Maybe the most well-known one is Psalm 2. Um, and, and it says in verses 6-8, to As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So, very similar themes that we see in all the kingly psalms. Where there's a prayer and a promise of God prospering the king, and and then implications on the kingdom. Um, Many of the kingship psalms are ascribed to King David. Uh, It's important to understand kind of how the psalms are laid out in the book of Psalms. So there's 150 psalms. They're laid out in five books. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but but, uh, occasionally it'll, it'll say book one, book two. So there's five different books of the psalms. The first two books of the psalms are mostly of David, Um, Book 1 especially, that's Psalms 1 through 41. There there are are multiple references to David there. Book 2, Psalm 42 to 72, also have lots by David, but lots as well by Korah, uh, sons of Korah, Asaph, and then Solomon, verse 72. So that second book finishes with a psalm by Solomon. And now Solomon is the successor of David. And so there's a progression going on in the psalms time-wise as well. As you go through these books so uh, you'll see a change there and also in that psalm at the end it says thus ends the prayers of David son of Jesse so in Psalm 72 it's in a sense the end of the the Psalms directly by David there's gonna be some Psalms by David later and I'll I'll explain that so then we go on book 3 there's a lot there's more by Asaph and Korah and then book 4 starts with a psalm by Moses and there's a little bit of a shift in the kingly psalms as it progresses. In the beginning, it's about David as king. And now it starts to shift away. Uh, and with Moses, in a sense, it's, it's saying, you know what? Even though uh, David might not be king anymore, the promises of God go all the way back to Moses. So, that, so Psalm 90 is by Moses. So there's this shift going on. What it looks like is that when the psalms were put together, and they weren't finally put together until after they came back from their exile, that they arranged the psalms in light of their history so the beginning of, is a lot by david a lot about that kingdom at the time and then there's this transition one by solomon and then in this third book uh it's about the reign, and now it's featuring the reign of god versus the reign of david per se uh, and so it's in a sense saying you know what we're we've come back from exile there's no longer a davidic king on the throne yet god is still the king and it goes all the way back to moses he was king we had a king in god before King David, in Moses. And then uh, book book, um, 5 is Psalm 107 to 150. Psalm 107 is a generic psalm, but then it goes into these reflections on the reign of David. And our psalm today is within book 5. So it appears that this psalm was assembled after they came back from exile. And they took psalms by David himself, and they created Psalm 144. So as we go through it, you'll see that. And it it is of David in that sense. David penned that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But their arrangement of Psalm 144 was afterwards, and it was in light of now that they have no longer have a king on the throne. They've come back for exile. How should they think about kingship? How should they think about kingdom? Um, And and so it teaches us things. I think it'll serve us well uh, to remember these things as we look at it, because Things are different now than under the reign of David. And we need to ask ourselves as well, how do we think about kingship? How do we think about the kingdom now uh, at this point in time? So just some background to help us. Let's dig in. But I need my notes because I will go more than 40 minutes without them. It is good to have a breeze. So first I want to talk about the king's success, verses 1 through 11. Um, the The psalm starts out focusing um, on God and his grace towards the king. Uh, and so there he says, uh, I bless the Lord or bless Yahweh, that I am his rock, who trains his hands for war, his fingers for battle. That's repetition, poetic repetition. God is the one who's his steadfast love, his, uh, the one who's faithful in his love under the covenant, under the old covenant, and then of course we experience that under the new covenant. God is his fortress, his stronghold and deliverer, his shield, who protects him, who subdues people under him. This is David praising God and remembering who his God is and, and who his God is for him as the king. David is the chosen king and, and God is his, his strength and his refuge as a king and certainly just as a believer. But as a king, God gives him victory and, and gives him the ability to have people to uh, come under his rule and come under his reign. And and the psalm is right out of Psalm 18. So if you flip in your Bibles, if you have your Bible, back to Psalm 18, you'll see that it's actually pretty much verbatim uh, in the first section here from Psalm 18. And in Psalm 18, the difference is David is actually remembering what the Lord had done and rescuing him from Saul. And in Psalm 144, it's a prayer for God to continue to be the same God that had done that for David, that he would do it now. So there's a shift in the perspective somewhat. The psalm continues... Uh, in verse 3, it, there's a, a shift. Um, it says in verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Has anyone heard that those phrases somewhere else in the Psalms? Psalm 8, right? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's, so this is right out of Psalm 8. It's interjected here. So the psalmist, uh, in writing it, uh, in putting together David's psalms and previous Psalms, is pausing here to interject something from Psalm 8, and it's, it's this reflection on who we are. So he's thinking about who God is and his power, his faithfulness, he's our, our fortress, our stronghold, our deliverer, but who are we? We are weak. What is man that you regard him, the son of man that you think of him? Lord, we have no claim in and of ourselves. We have no ability in and of ourselves to, to carry out these things. Verse 4: Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. We're a vapor. We're nothing. There's a sobriety in their self-assessment, in the psalmist's self-assessment, that's faithful to Scripture. He's focusing on God and his ability, but, but he's not going to forget who he is. Left to himself, and we left to ourselves. And any king or, or any part, member of the kingdom left to ourselves, we are a vapor. We are nothing in and of ourselves. We have no strength. And that was true then and it's true now. We live in this reality. This this psalm is a wonderful combination of of exalting in God and remembering who He is, who He's been, and then praying for Him to continue to be that way, but also a sober reflection on ourselves. And that's a really good combination, by the way. Our, our, Our natural selves, our culture, doesn't like to do that. We want it all to be positive. Let's exalt God and let's exalt ourselves. But but, but that's not the truth. The truth is we are creations, not the Creator. We are needy. We are dependent. We're made by Him. We're made to depend on Him. And apart from Him, we can't do anything good. We need Him. And so this psalm puts this together and reminds us of this. And we live in this reality. We are aware of this reality of of. Wonderful victories that the Lord gives, but also weakness and failure on our part. We exist in a world that is broken. It's out of harmony. We want to follow God, but there's so much opposing us. There's this fallen world, our own fallen humanity. There are fallen angels around us. And our odds aren't very good left to ourselves. It's really helpful and healthy to admit our need and see our weakness because that's where the solution starts to be found because you realize I can't do it, but he can. He's the one who exalts the king. He's the one who brings the kingdom. Left to myself, I can do nothing. I'm but a vapor. So don't despise your weakness. Be glad for your weakness because it reminds you of your need for God. And it helps you orient yourself towards him. That's what's going on in this psalm. This psalm is Tremendously positive in what it's celebrating and asking for, but it's it's also honest and real and relatable. David continues to, uh, in this via Psalm 18, speak about how God came in power to rescue him. And the psalmist here in 144 is remembering these same things. Psalm 18 says, uh, just about what it says here verbatim, He bowed down the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. That's all verbatim from Psalm 18. And then you'll see it as you look through Psalm 144. David is poetically remembering his rescue. And the Psalms are full of imagery. Some of that imagery, of course, is is literal. It's exactly what happened. But often it's, it's a picture of God's power. It's using poetic imagery to speak of how dramatically he came, how wonderful his deliverance was, how mighty the results uh, were. That, that's what's going on in this imagery. But there are some differences in Psalm 144. Again, from what we can tell, this is put together later. This is put together after they came back from ex- exile. Sometime under maybe Zerubbabel or Ezra, sometime in that time period under the Persian king. And this is a request that God would come in power just like he did for David, that he would come in power for them. Because they have enemies who are opposing them as well. They live under the Persian king, but we know from the stories that we read in in Scripture, in Nehemiah and Ezra and elsewhere, that they faced opposition from foreigners around them who were opposed to them, who were opposed to their rebuilding of the temple or their rebuilding of Jerusalem in the wall. And so this is a prayer of God, would you come down and would you would you work? Would you come against these foreigners who are opposed to you? They're crying out for God to, to rescue them. And they're expecting God to honor what He's done in history, to honor His promises. And And we live in the same world, guys. Now we're not the Old Testament people of God after the exile in, in uh geographical Israel, but we also live in this world that is full of enemies. We live under the king, and there's a kingdom that we're a part of, but there are enemies all around us. We, we, we have to face that reality. There are enemies who oppose us, and the enemies to us are not foreigners, those of a different people group. The enemies to us are, are the fallen angels the spiritual evil around us who oppose the people and purposes of God. Our enemies are, are the culture in, in various aspects of the culture that would be worldly and opposed to God. Our enemies are sin within as well. That though we are new creations, there's still this brokenness in us that opposes what's right and good. And uh, Paul talks about that for, we, for us as a believer, we don't do what we want to do. We live in this tension of like, I want to obey him, but there's this other part of me saying, do this thing. So we have these enemies just like the context of Psalm 144. And so we look to the Lord to rescue us. We, we can pray this way. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me. Deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners, from the enemies of my soul and the enemies of you, O God, whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. And then verse 9, I will sing a new song to you, O God. There's a transition here. As he's crying out, his expectation will be that he will sing a new song. Again, this is taken from David's Psalms, but it's in the context of Psalm 144. I will sing a new song to you. This is not that a new song in the sense of like a brand new composition, though it may be that. It's a song about a new thing that God's doing, a recent activity of the Lord, a fresh deliverance of God. That's what a new song is. There's this anticipation of, God, you're going to come and answer these prayers. And then I'm going to sing a new song. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to sing of how you rescued me. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. God is the one who gives victory to his kings. Actually, notice it's plural there. Because now they're looking back. They see David. They see the different kings throughout time. And they anticipate, and they are anticipating, the future king. That's what happens in the Psalms as we move through. There's this shift from looking at David... Looking at God as king and then looking forward to the future king that he would bring. So we can pray this psalm. We can ask the Lord, deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer is a wonderful template in line with this psalm. And it says at the end, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Make that your daily prayer when you get up in the morning. Pray the whole Lord's Prayer. Pray it at lunchtime. Pray it before you go to sleep at night. Pray in line with Psalm 144. God comes to answer. He comes to rescue. He loves to do that. And and we know from the rest of Scripture that that these these prayers were answered. We have the books of the Bible, Daniel and Esther, Zechariah, Haggai, Haggai, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. All our books written about this time period. And about God's rescue of his people. He didn't stop being the king. He didn't stop working his kingdom through these times. And these stories are wonderful reminders that God continues to rule even when things seem to be sabotaged. That's so important to remember and understand. Can you imagine maybe what it would feel like to have been an Old Testament believer after the exile and before Jesus? What would it have been like? You know the promises. You know the promises to David. You know the promises that God had given and intended to fulfill in Scripture. The Old Testament is full of these things. Starting way back in the book of Genesis, you see all these things filled out in Isaiah and elsewhere. What would it be like to live in that time because you actually didn't live under the fulfillment of those promises? You lived under a foreign ruler. You lived under a cruel ruler eventually. How did the people, the the people of faith of the Old Testament, live? What was it like to be someone like Simeon or Anna who got to see Jesus in the temple but it had been a long time? How did they make it? How did they endure? How do they keep on keeping on? How did righteous Jews like Joseph and Mary endure under cruel Roman rule? How do we endure? How do we endure under seasons like we're in? How do you endure under a pandemic when we can't be together like we ought to be? We can't be doing VBS. Actually, this would be the week where we would have done VBS. How do you endure? How do you keep... Keep on going. How do you survive? How do you thrive when it seems that all the foundations are being shaken? How do we hold up in exile in your home or behind your mask? Psalm 144 helps us. It gives us perspective. because it was written by and for the people going through the exact same thing that we are. It calls us to remember and to anticipate. To remember and to anticipate. To remember what God has done, what He has promised, how He has acted, and anticipate Him being faithful to His promises and working and exalting the King and bringing His kingdom even now and answering our prayers. We're to continue to expect and to act and to wait on Him. It gives us hope. It gives us perspective. And we have much more reason even than the Old Testament saints to hang in there because they had not yet seen fulfillment that we've seen. We've seen the fulfillment of the promises. Jesus has already come. The King has come. The King has overcome. The king has come to fulfill all righteousness. He lived the righteous life that God called mankind to live, that God called his covenant people to live. He lived this perfect life. He demonstrated his lordship over all things. Sickness, sin, Satan, death. The king has come and shown us for sure that he is indeed the king of kings. And then, being a king so different than any other, He laid down His prerogative as King and sacrificed Himself in our place so that we could enjoy victory with Him. He paid for our sins, our rebellion, our transgressions against God. He paid for those sins on the cross, dying the death we deserve to die, that we might live under His reign in new life. He died Paid for sins, said it is finished. He conquered sin and death and then was raised up on the third day, alive forevermore. So the king is alive right now. We live under a living king. He ascended to heaven. He's reigning at the right hand of God right now. There's a difference for us because this reign is real. And he said before he went, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. I reign over all. I'm in control of all. Even when it seems that you're overwhelmed. Even when it seems that the promises and plans are sabotaged. I'm still in control. And I actually use all those things for the good of my church. For the good of my people. I'm reigning over these things. I'm working a plan. We don't understand all the details of the plan. But we know it involves both His sovereignty over everything that happens. And a direction that all would hear the gospel. That all nations, all peoples would hear the gospel. That there'd be a vibrant living witness of God's people among all peoples. That the bride would be made beautiful. Before he comes back, the bride will be beautiful. She will wear robes of righteousness. Read in Revelation. He doesn't come back to a limping, pathetic bride. He comes back to a victorious, faithful, glorious bride. Those things will be completed. and He is reigning for that purpose right now. So we have this truth that we live under his reign. We are forgiven. He's overcome sin and death. He's our king. His victory has been accomplished. And he's mopping up now in light of that. And so we live with that truth in mind. The king has been exalted. But there is a, a reality that the fullness of his reign isn't there. Not everything is submitting to Jesus quite yet. He's fully sovereign over all things, but not everything is saying, Jesus, You are my Lord, and I'm glad of it. Every knee has not bowed. Every tongue has not yet confessed. And so we live in tension, and and the enemies of our soul are still around. They have not been vanquished permanently. All authority is with Jesus, so we can be confident in, in our faith and obedience and in the mission He calls us to, and yet there are still enemies around. So we live in this tension, theologians use the phrase already and not yet. I think it's a tremendously helpful phrase. Already and not yet. The kingdom has already come. The king is already reigning but not yet the fullness of it. It's not yet complete. So we live in this tension and we so have to understand this. It is so important to understand we live in this tension already and not yet. Tremendous victories, the king's kingdom being extended, the king being exalted, And yet, struggling and failure at times or just incomplete fulfillment. We see this in the Scriptures. We see it in the context of Psalm 144. The the very fact that they're asking for the King and His kingdom to come means that it's not yet complete. We see it in history. We see it in the lives of the saints. I think of two that that illustrate this. Two prominent leaders in recent church history. One, John Wimber, uh, the leader of the Vineyard Christian Churches. A very gifted man. Uh, This is the Vineyard Churches, about 2,000 churches. Had a a great impact on the broader body and both loving the gospel and the kingdom. John Wimber was probably the most gifted man in terms of healing and some of the miraculous gifts while still being faithful in, in so many ways to the word. Was used by God to probably heal thousands, yet John Wimber died from throat cancer in his 60s. It's a picture of what we're talking about. Wonderful victory. He comes to faith. He he leads churches, leads people to faith. There's healing. There's change in people's lives. And yet he dies of throat cancer. Billy Graham. Amazing ministry in his life. Uh, Three million people. Three million people profess faith in Christ as a result of his ministry. Amazing. I came to Christ uh, partly through his influence. Six decades of ministry over six continents. Tremendous. And yet, if you know his life, he failed in his parenting in some significant aspects. He had regrets. Uh, he was faithful in many ways, but he had regrets over his parenting. It was, it was incomplete. It wasn't perfect. This illustrates the reality, guys, that we live in this already and not Yet. Not that we should settle for failure, but we need to realize that this life will be a struggle and a mixture of the reign of the king and awaiting the fullness of his reign. So what do we do? We pray Psalm 144. We dig into Psalm 144. We reflect on Psalm 144. We pray for the victory of the king. We pray for the kingdom, but we realize that it's a struggle. But we keep on asking. We remember his promises. We remember what he's already done. Jesus has already overcome sin and death. We remember the good news again and again and again. We recount it. And we ask Lord, would you bring the full implications of the good news in my life? In my family? In my marriage? In my church? In my community? In my culture? In the world? We ask for the king to reign and to bring his kingdom. And that's what we see at the end here, verses 12 through 15, it's a picture of what it looks like when the king reigns. This is originally in the context, again, of living in exile and and coming back and asking the Lord to, to restore them and to work. And so verse 12 says, May our sons and their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Now, for us, we look at that and we think that's interesting. I'm not sure if... I, if I want my son to be a plant full-grown, or my daughter to be a corner pillar. But again, this is poetic in in its day. Um, And plants back then were pretty cool because they're cool now, but we have so many green things around us, especially when we're outside. Back then, they lived in an arid climate. Green things were not that common. And it was really good when you could get something to grow well. So picture the the sons, the the young men being compared to like a, a... vibrant grapevine that's just full of fruit, bearing fruit and and mature and and supplying uh, the needs of of the family that owns that. That's the idea. So may our sons be like plants, full grown. May our sons grow up and be faithful and fruitful. May they be a blessing to those around them. May they be a, a source of sustenance and strength. That's the idea. May our daughters be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. In that day, one of the most um, attractive and, and noble, things you would see would be a pillar in a palace. And so this is communicating, may our, may our daughters, may the young women be these, these noble, distinguished, and supremely attractive in the very best ways people. May they be like those beautiful, awesome pillars. Attractive sources of strength and stability. That's the prayer. That's the expectation. It goes on, may our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. They, they lived in a time when they were heavily taxed and their granaries were probably half empty. And so the prayer is, may our granaries be full. May there be abundance. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Again, they're an agrarian society. And so your wealth was measured in your flocks. So this is saying, may our, our GNP be growing like a thousand percent every year. That's what they're praying. May our, our sheep just keep on multiplying. May there be this prosperity under your king, in your kingdom. Next it says in the ESV, Suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. This is translated different ways. The Hebrew is clear. I think it's better translated how it is in the New King James and elsewhere. It says, no Suffering no breach, uh, nor any going out. And the going out would be into exile. So no breach, no foreigners coming in and breaking into the city and taking over. And no being taken out of the kingdom and sent back into exile. And no cries of distress in the streets. So those things fit together. This is the the prayer that may there no longer be foreign armies conquering us. Instead, may we be secure as God's people. May there be no influence and evil coming in to overtake us. May we not be taken away from being the people of God and, and His blessing and prosperity. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. But peace instead and prosperity in, in, under the King. It's a sweet picture, isn't it? Fruitfulness. The younger generation stepping up and fruitfulness and faithfulness. Enjoying prosperity and peace. No cries of distress in the streets. I, I think this is especially sweet to us now because we're in a season where there's a lot of cries in the streets. Cries from many on all sides of issues. Asking for justice. Crying for violence too. All sorts of cries out there. And so this is all the more appealing that there is no more cries, there is peace, there is justice and goodness, truth and love affecting everyone. Peace and prosperity versus vexation, violence and poverty. This is the prayer here. It should be our prayer. It should be our prayer that God brings the blessing of the reign of Christ in our lives and around us. That we ask for Him to come with His reign and to rule over our own hearts, our families, our churches, our communities. To ask for these things. To realize that that we do live in this already and not yet, but to ask for Him to work. I think having the right expectation for this age in history is really important. I think having the right expectation of this already not yet will either make or break us, humanly speaking. In other words, if we get this wrong, I think we'll do very poorly, one way or the other. If we emphasize the already too much, We'll be triumphalistic and we won't address the, the, the brokenness, the need for change, the need for repentance, the need for change in family and church and culture and so forth. We'll fail to see that and we'll live in a, in a false perspective, a false reality and a false faith. If we're too much not yet, we fail to see that the king is reigning right now. Lives are being transformed. Lives should be affected. Marriages should reflect Christ in the church. Families should be a picture of the family of God. Churches should be oases of the kingdom of God. Communities should be blessed through the people of God. And in God's sovereignty, as He determines, there will be times when the whole culture is blessed. And the gospel should go forward and be changing and affecting all peoples throughout the whole earth. So we need both these things together already and not yet. And I think this is the reality of the psalm and the reality of, of history. Guys, we live in a time where Christianity has already been doing this. It is already in many ways. Sometimes we maybe don't realize because we live in it. We take things for granted. But before Christianity affected Western culture, Western culture was a, a brutal culture. It was ruthless. It was for the strong. The weak were not cared for. The, re- the weak were destroyed. Weak children were not even raised. They were left out to die. And it was the strong, it was the warlord who reigned. And everyone had to bow to the warlord and whatever he wanted. There were no human rights. There was not respect. There was not care for the poor. There was not equality of the sexes. There was not equality of ethnicities. Government was not understood as having a, a stewardship to care for its citizens. That's the reality, but Christianity came in and has been influencing the West bit by bit. didn't all come at once. But Christianity and the influence of Christianity is the reason there have been changes in these areas. Science and technology as well. The idea that we can use this world and use it for good and that it's understandable and knowable, that it's made, it's not a magical, spiritual thing, it's made by God, it's not God. Therefore, God has given it to us for our good so we can study it and learn it and apply it. That's the the foundation of the scientific method and the development of technology. And I would submit to you the ground of that success recently is Christianity. Before that, the world was a scary and unpredictable place and unknowable in their views. So the, the reign of the king is touching these areas. And we're seeing the reign of the king touch... So many nations and ethnicities and people groups. Guys, we live in probably the greatest time in history to be a Christian in terms of the gospel going forward. Unprecedented, wonderful things. Don't don't let the news define your reality. Don't let the media shape your perspective. I don't Question the motives of people in the media, but I do know the business is oriented towards living off of engaging people. And one of the things that sells the most is rage and criticism and negativity. Positive things don't sell on media. It's just the fact people don't want to read a nice story. They want to read about something that gets them upset, something wrong with the world, something that they can jump on and critique along every along side of everyone else. Be aware of that reality, guys. And let instead the Word of God and Psalm 144 and these other truths fill your mind and shape you. Watch out. Be careful for the peddlers of rage. Those that conspire conspiracy theories to pull you in and get you to forget what's here and live in light of the King and His reign and that it's come and it's coming. It's already and not yet. We are seeing amazing things happen in this time. The past hundred years, Currently, there are 2.7 million people per year come to faith in Christ. 2.7 million people per year throughout the world. Christianity is growing faster than any other worldview in terms of genuine conversions. It's growing through birth and children growing up in it, but through genuine conversions, it's growing. 2.7 million per year. We're seeing unprecedented change among Muslims that we haven't seen in, in, in thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands of, of Muslims are coming to understand who Jesus really is and follow him every year. The Christian population of China has grown from 4 million in 1949 to 67 million or more. Actually, that number is low. It's, I think it's more like, like 300 million or 200 million, I've, I've read. Higher number than that. Africa's gone from 9 million Christians to, in 1900 to 380 million Christians now. In Nepal... They've gone from zero Christians in 1950 to 3 million Christians now. Most of those in the past 10 to 15 years. Guys, the king is reigning and ruling and working. So don't tell me this is the age of apostasy and decline. Don't tell me that Jesus won't finish what he started. Don't tell me the church won't be beautiful when he returns. But also don't tell me that there won't be trouble. Don't tell me that there won't be trials. It's through many trials that you enter the kingdom of God. Don't tell me we're going to be sinlessly perfect now. Don't tell me that the church won't struggle and have pockets of places where it fails. It's clear from the Word. We live in the already and not yet. So what do we do? We pray Psalm 144. We let it inspire us. We ask for the reign of the King to expand. We ask God to vanquish the King's enemies. We ask for powerful change in our own lives, in our marriages, our families, in our church. We pray these things. We ask the kingdom to come. We ask Him to work in our community. We ask Him to work throughout the world that the gospel would go forth. We pray Psalm 144, and we trust the Lord. We wait upon the Lord who is faithful, who has worked and will work, We pray and we live for the reign of the King and His kingdom. We pray Psalm 144. Let's pray.